You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to the History of Witchcraft. Episode 26. Demon Women and Foul Devices. You are too dull a devil to be trusted forth in those parts, Pug, upon any affair that may concern our name on Earth. It is not everyone's work. The state of hell must care whom it employs in point of reputation here about London. You would make, I think, an agent to be sent for Lancashire proper enough. Satan, managing his minions' expectations in Ben Jonson's comedy, The Devil is an Ass. Welcome back to the History of Witchcraft podcast. Last week, we covered the later reign of James VI of Scotland and the entire reign of James I of England. I speak, of course, about the same person, James Stuart, who would probably prefer to be called James I of Great Britain. Unfortunately for His Majesty, Parliament won that particular fight, while they narrowly avoided getting quite thoroughly exploded in one of the plots against the King's life. James would do his utmost to avoid both Parliament and foreign wars throughout his time in England, and while he didn't dodge them entirely, his reign was largely peaceful and largely without Parliament. I also realised, after publishing last week's episode, that I'd missed some of the most notable events of Jacobean England, colonisation. Specifically, the plantations in Ireland and the settlements in the New World, because of course I did. For now though, you'll just have to settle, pun not intended, to know that they happened. I will return to English colonisation in a future episode, either when we look at witchcraft in the New World, or in a completely different context. You'll just have to wait and see. As we touched on last week, James oversaw the enactment of the harshest anti-witchcraft law that England would ever see, and one that would remain in force for over a century, finally being overturned by the 1735 Act, which criminalised the act of accusing someone of witchcraft. Quite a reversal of the situation, I have to say. Anyway, the Jacobean Act has been traditionally seen as the superstitious James enforcing the standards he was used to in Scotland, and there's certainly an element of this in effect. Yet, James was not the zealot he had been just ten years earlier. He had mellowed somewhat, and gained a certain level of scepticism. There were still hardliners in his government, of course, most notably Sir Edward Coke and Sir Edmund Anderson, but the Anglican Church was in the midst of its own controversy over witchcraft, particularly over the methods used by both Catholic recalcitrants and Puritan preachers to root out the devil. The king's growing scepticism, his volte-face, as Ronald Holmes puts it, can be seen from a number of different ways. 
With parallels to the North Berwick trials, James takes a personal interest in a number of witchcraft trials over the next two decades. And yet, the results could not be more different, with a number of suspects being acquitted only after the king personally examined both the supposed witches and their accusers. James's court also included a number of notable sceptics, who surely played some role on the king's changing views. Samuel Harsnett, the future Archbishop of York, had been a relentless critic of the Puritan exorcist John Darrell, and Harsnett would go on to expose a cabal of Jesuits who had been conducting their own spiritual purgings in 1603. Francis Bacon was James's Lord Chancellor, and he would write that, quote, Witches themselves are imaginative, and believed oft-times they do what they do not, end quote. Queen Anne's reader, John Florio, translated the essays of Michel de Montagny, the French philosopher who was quite critical of witch hunts, into English. In 1616, Ben Jonson would publish his play, The Devil is an Ass, which treats the devil with scorn and mocks those who believe in his powers on earth. In his sights are witch hunters and magistrates that jump at the chance to hang their suspects. One character, a businessman heavily in debt, tricks his creditors by pretending to be possessed, while the devil himself appears in the play, gets outwitted by the humans, and is arrested and sent to Newgate Prison. James was Johnson's patron, and it is highly likely that by this point James would be laughing at the naive and gullible magistrates just as much as the next guy. Now, this is making a number of assumptions. Holmes argues that Florio must have been in agreement with Montagny in order to translate his work, and that he was in enough favour with James to speak his mind. Now, I'm not convinced by this argument. Florio may have been commissioned to translate the essays, so his personal feelings would have had no role to play. Montagny also wrote many essays, and it's highly unlikely that Florio was in agreement with all of his ideas, so to single out his views on witchcraft seems a bit odd. Also impossible to know is whether Florio, if he had chosen to translate the essays because of his firm agreement with their contents, would have raised them with James. James was scholarly, yes, but he could already read French, so there was no great revelation from an English translation. If he wanted to read Montaigne, he could read Montaigne in its original script, Yet, James would nevertheless show a growing level of scepticism over the course of his English reign. We'll begin our examination of Jacobean trials with the case of Elizabeth Jackson in 1603. Now, this is in the final years of the reign of Elizabeth, but it's helpful to illustrate the value of pamphlets for our understanding of Elizabethan and Jacobean society. For this, I'm primarily using Stephen Bradwell's pamphlet, Mary Glover's Late Woeful Case. Mary Glover was a young girl who had visited Elizabeth Jackson's house on an errand for her mother. Unfortunately for young Mary, Jackson held a grudge against the girl for, quote, discovering to one of her mistresses a certain fashion of her subtle and importunate begging, end quote. Closing the door, Jackson trapped Mary in the house and threatened her for over an hour, loud enough that many neighbours could hear Jackson's threats, including Mary's uncle, Sheriff Glover. Sheriff, by the way, wasn't his name, that was his job, which will play a role. Eventually, Mary was allowed to leave, but when Mary's mother, Gothrin, heard of the verbal abuse her daughter had been subjected to, she confronted Jackson. 
Jackson then denied having ever threatened the girl, and is so enraged by the accusation that she threatens Gothran. Quote, You do not have crosses now, but I hope you shall have as many crosses as ever fell upon women and children. Can you guess what happened then? Well, Mary Glover, the little poppet, fell ill. Described as fits, Mary remained afflicted for over three months. They seem to have begun after the Jackson visit to the Glover household, purportedly to see Gothran. When Mary told her that, sorry, Mum's not home, Jackson left. But when Mary went back to her food, her throat had become so swollen that she couldn't eat. Jackson, probably feeling guilty for shouting at the girl, if indeed she had, or at the very least taking pity on the sick child, sent her an orange. Now, I'm under the impression that oranges were quite the luxury in England at this time, and Mary certainly treats it as such. Instead of, say, eating it, she spends the day holding it and smelling it, making the most of this sweet treat. Unfortunately for Jackson, her benevolent gesture goes awry when Mary's, quote, hand, arm, and whole side was, quote, deprived of feeling and moving. Things only got worse when, on two occasions, Jackson happened upon Mary in public, whereupon Mary collapsed in a fit. Following this, numerous witnesses gathered around Mary, and Jackson was brought before her. When she is, Mary has another fit, and an eerie voice sounds from her nostrils. Hang her, hang her. Among the witnesses was an alderman, a knight, and a noblewoman. When Jackson appears surprised and shocked by the girl's reaction, quote, all present believe she is lying, end quote. Now, a few of these events have logical causes. In the case of the orange, it's possible that this was just a case of a young girl, sick with some kind of fever, being so exhausted that the repeated use of her arm was too much. The fits could either be staged, as it wouldn't be the first or last time that a child is coerced into something like this, or a genuine mental reaction to seeing the woman who, she fervently believes, wishes her harm. The spectral voice, of course, could be Mary repeating what her parents told her to say. The crowd was not on her side and expected the worst of Jackson. Yet Jackson was not alone. The Bishop of London, Richard Bancroft, was said to be sympathetic to the suspected witch, possibly as the policy of the Anglican Church regarding witchcraft was so heated. Bancroft suggested Jackson petition the College of Physicians. If I'm reading the pamphlet correctly, three physicians had been involved in the case so far, and had accused Jackson of causing Mary's symptoms. When the college examined them, their procedures were found wanting, and so Jackson gained the college's support. The Recorder of London, Sir John Crook, it was sent to validate Mary's fits, once having Jackson enter the room as normal, and the other time dressing Jackson as a, quote, anonymous woman. Despite this, in both cases, Mary falls into a fit, although one has to wonder how much effort actually went into this. There is no mention of having a lineup or having multiple women, as was normal, so it's possible that Jackson was brought in, Mary reacted, Jackson was taken out, and given a new hat, and then brought in. Mary could have easily recognised her suspected assailant, or at the very least deduced that maybe this strange woman reappearing so soon after Jackson was actually Jackson. In either case, Crook was suspicious, and had Jackson repeat the Lord's Prayer, but Jackson was unable to even speak the line, deliver us from evil. Well, that's not good. 
Jackson was then thrown into Newgate to await trial, with Crook convinced she is guilty. At the trial, Mary again suffers a fit from Jackson's presence. The doctors, who had been criticised by the college, testified that they believe Mary to be bewitched, and that Jackson had, quote, marks not likely caused by disease, end quote, while a preacher, Lewis Hughes, recounted how he had been struck dumb by Jackson from a single glance after admonishing her for her coarse language. Jackson's neighbours testified against her too, having heard her argument with Gothrin, and having similarly suffered when they chose the side of the Glovers in this spat. Bancroft defends Jackson, claiming that Mary Glover is pretending to be bewitched, as do two physicians from the college, who dispute the previous testimony from the doctors. Despite this, Lord Chief Justice Anderson, who was judging this court case, was against Jackson. This is the trial where he famously decried that, quote, The land is full of witches. They abound in all places. I have hanged five or six and twenty of them. There is no man here can speak more of them than myself. Few of them would confess it. Some of them did. Against whom the proofs were nothing so manifest as against those that denied it, end quote. Anderson strongly hints to the jury that they should find Jackson guilty. And they do. Under the Elizabethan Act, because no one had been killed and it was her first conviction, Jackson was spared the noose. Instead, she was sentenced to a year's imprisonment, with quarterly sessions in the pillory to be abused by the crowds. However, Jackson, through her powerful supporters in the College of Physicians and the Bishop of London, quote, probably received a royal pardon. She certainly escaped punishment, end quote. In the trial of Elizabeth Jackson, we can see the clash between witch hunters like Anderson and moderates such as the Bishop of London, men who saw different threats to the social order. Anderson saw witchcraft as a clear and present danger that could be fought, but Bancroft and his fellows in the Anglican Church saw the social strife inherent in the actions of witchfinders, both of the Puritan and Catholic kind, as well as from their allies in the judiciary, as the main threat. So, in the aftermath of the arrival of the witch-hunting, demonologist, scholar King James, and the passing of the 1604 Witchcraft Act, you might expect that the likes of Bancroft would find themselves out in the cold. How could they continue to oppose witch trials when the man at the top, God's viceroy on earth, was a bloodthirsty witch-hunter? Well, it became quite clear that James's thirst had been sufficiently quenched by the time the case of Anne Gunter came about. In 1605, in the small town of South Morton, which was then in Berkshire, there was a young girl of 14, or, alternatively, 20, sources differ, called Anne Gunter. Now, young Anne had begun to vomit with worrying regularity, and with worrying contents, most notably pins and needles and other small items that had no right to be vomited up by anyone, let alone a child. Anne had been bewitched, and she pointed the finger at three local women. One, Agnes Pepwell, fled the village, while two others, her illegitimate daughter and the thoroughly unpopular Elizabeth Gregory, were arrested. Now, the women were prosecuted, but they were acquitted. Not content with this, Anne, supported by her father Brian, would not let it go. Eventually, Anne was placed in the custody of the Bishop of Salisbury, Henry Cotton, who was sceptical of her claims. He purposefully left a number of specially marked pins around, 
Lo and behold, when the sickness again struck young Anne, the bishop's pins were used as a prop in her performance. This is when Brian, Anne's father, made a crucial error. He had heard about James's hatred of witchcraft and believed he could be convinced of the truth of his daughter's bewitchment. So in August, he travelled to Oxford University to meet the king, who was making a special visit to the university, and he brought Anne. However, James was much less gullible than his reputation suggested, and much more interested in exposing fraudulent accusations. Young Anne was put first into the care of Richard Bancroft, now Archbishop of Canterbury, who then passed her to the custody of Samuel Harsnett, the sceptic we discussed earlier as having publicly condemned both Puritan and Catholic exorcists. Harsnett found the truth, and confessed to having invented her bewitchment, and that it was her father, Brian, that had coached her on what to do, how to act, and who to blame. The Gunters and the Gregories have been in a feud since 1598, when Brian killed two members of the Gregory family at a football match. I don't see how they could be annoyed at that. What followed was a first. The Gunters were brought before the Court of Star Chamber on charges of fraud for fabricating claims of witchcraft. More interestingly, this trial was headed by the Attorney General, Sir Edward Coke, the advocate of witch trials that we've spoken of previously. Roughly 60 witnesses were questioned. Brian Gunter used his connections at Oxford to have several leading academics testify in his favour, including a doctor who would become Shakespeare's son-in-law. Historian James Sharp, who has done a wonderful amount of research on this case, found the social motives for the case. He used wills, manorial records, and local church records to discover that the village's lord was rarely there, and so it was instead run by five families, and the Gregories were one of them. The Gunters were not. The Gunters were interlopers, arriving in 1587, and Brian immediately made himself known as difficult. He'd gone to court against the absentee lord over some legal wrangling, and had already found himself in Star Chamber after the five families of Morton complained to the king about his violent behaviour. After this case, the case involving his daughter, Brian would again be in the Star Chamber, facing accusations of assault against a vicar and his wife. He was in his 80s at this point. So the man was difficult. Court records of Anne's account suggest that he was no better to his family. Anne was drugged, beaten, threatened, sworn to secrecy over this ploy, and dragged kicking and screaming out of a neighbour's house where she'd fled before being beaten in the street. All of this recounted in detail in front of the King, the Attorney General, the Bishop of Salisbury, Francis Stuart, and countless visiting nobles, clergy, and gentry all attracted by the spectacle of this trial. Sadly, Professor Sharp was unable to find out the result of this trial, the records appear to have been lost. We do know that Brian Gunter returned to Morton, where he would later attack the vicar and find his way back to court. And there were hints that Anne had maybe found love during this ordeal, marrying, and romantically enough, with King James providing the dowry. We can but hope that she got a happy ending. It is possible that this brazen example of fraudulent witchcraft accusations was a watershed moment for both James and the witch-hunt advocates in his court. In the excerpt I read at the beginning of today's episode, the devil is mocking his servant, Pug, for wanting to go to Earth. Pug is too dull a devil to be trusted, 
in somewhere sensible, like, say, London. Of course, the play would have been first performed in London, and London would be Johnson's main audience. So, of course, he's going to flatter the audience and say they're sensible and modern and far too clever to be tricked by something as silly as Pug. So, where would an incompetent devil like Pug be successful? Oh, yes, the superstitious backwater that is Lancashire. This was certainly the reputation that Lancashire had, at least in London, in the first decades of the 17th century. Both the public and official minds of the capital viewed the entire region as steeped in superstitious Catholicism, and rife with dissidents. So it's a little surprise that Lancashire vies with Essex for the title of England's witch craze Heartland. Lancashire would host two of the most famous trials in English history, with the numbers of suspects and the numbers of executed not being surpassed until the witch-finder general finds his way into our story. Modern Lancashire is quite fond of its morbid history. Just take a look at the Visit Lancashire website. My particular favourite is the Pendle Witch Trial, a tourist route that tracks the path that a number of witches took from Pendle to Lancaster Castle. Now, I'm going to throw a lot of names out here, so I'll put something on the Facebook page to help you follow who's who, or at least that's what I intend to do today, half a week before I actually upload the episode, so if I forget, then just pester me until I do. Okay, so, on the 21st of March, 1612, a man known as John Law had a dispute with Alison Device, apparently due to refusing to sell her some pins, and he promptly fell into an illness that seemed magically induced. A Justice of the Peace, Roger Newell, arrived on the 30th and took statements from Alison, her mother Elizabeth, her brother James, and John Law's son Abraham, who accused Alison of being responsible for his father's illness. Noel was an experienced JP, that is, Justice of the Peace, at 62 years of age, with many years of experience under his belt. He was also an established local landowner with significant family connections and was a devout Protestant. Noel was vital in the process of these trials, although it's unclear whether he was a particularly strong believer in witchcraft or the need to root it out beforehand. As we will see, the wave of accusations was strong, and it is possible that he became a firm believer after a seemingly endless queue of witnesses came to him with stories. His local connections may have provided a motive for going further than he would otherwise, but I'm getting ahead of myself. On the 2nd of April, Noel examined Elizabeth Device's mother, Alison Device's grandmother, after hearing reports that she, too, was a suspect. Elizabeth Sovens, also known as Old Demdike, was 80 years old at the time. Noel also took the time to question Anne Whittle, also known as Chattox, as well as three witnesses. Do you see what I mean about names now? Going forward, I'll try to stick to Old Demdike for Elizabeth Sovens, the grandmother of Alison and the mother of Elizabeth, and Chattox for Anne Whittle. Apparently, the nickname Demdike derived from Demon Woman, so that might suggest a certain amount of hostility towards her from the community? Not sure. Alison, under interrogation, told Noel that old Demdike had told her to, quote, let a devil or familiar appear to her, and that she would this examinate, would let him suck at some part of her, and she might have, and do what she would. On the 4th of April, Noel had Alison, old Demdike, Chattox, and Chattox's daughter, Anne Redfern, arrested, and sent to Lancaster Castle to await trial. 
At the same time this was happening, give or take a couple of days, in the neighbouring county of York, a woman called Janet Preston was tried and acquitted for the murder of a child through sorcery. This may seem like an odd thing to bring up, but it will be relevant later, I promise. Less than a week after their arrest, on the 10th of April, so Good Friday, there was a witch sabbat at Malkin Tower, the home of old Demdike. Among those present was Alison's brother, James, and here they planned to break their family and friends out of Lancaster Castle through magic and gunpowder. On the 27th, Noel found out about this sabbat, although there are two potential stories. The first is that Noel heard it through the grapevine, that word got out from the ten or so people there. The other, advocated in Robert Poole's book, The Lancashire Witches, Histories and Stories, is that the devices willingly, or at least as willingly as possible under the circumstances, told Noel about the Sabbath themselves. However he found out, he did, and whether or not there was any truth to it, this event implicated a number of locals as witches, and convinced Noel and his colleagues that they'd stumbled upon a serious coven of witches. The devices remained in custody for another month, whereupon Chattox and James admitted to a collection of officials, namely the coroner of the castle, the mayor of Lancaster, and another JP, that they were indeed witches. On the 19th of May, Chattox confessed to making a pact with the devil, who had appeared to her in the likeness of a man, who convinced her to trade her soul for earthly powers. As part of the bargain, the devil demanded to suckle, on Chattox, near the ribs, while a creature in the likeness of a spotted dog appeared to act as her familiar. I'm going to quote directly from Paul here because he words it perfectly. The evidence of the children, Janet and James Device, was vital in initiating the wider allegations of witchcraft, and a reading of the examinations published by Thomas Potts in his account of the trials shows that by this stage, suspects were clearly beginning to panic and accuse each other. The investigations had reached critical mass, and neighbours came forward in large numbers to tell the authorities of acts of witchcraft, which had occurred sometimes many years before, their statements sometimes revealing how witchcraft suspicions were enmeshed in local feuds and rivalries. The Thomas Potts, who Dr. Poole refers to, is the author of An Account of the Trial, who provides much of the information we know about these events. However, as we will see next time, Potts was no neutral observer. His work was intended to push one particular narrative of events. The accused remained imprisoned in Lancaster Castle until August, when the Aziz were held. In the meantime, Janet Preston was, again, accused of murder through witchcraft, but this time found guilty and executed on the 27th of July. Jonathan Lumby in his book, The Lancashire Witch Craze, suggests that, instead of witchcraft or murder, her true crime was to have been the mistress of the late Thomas Lister, whose son, Thomas Lister Jr., did not take kindly to his father having another woman, and held a strong dislike of her. It was only three months prior that Preston had been found not guilty of murder, although she did make the mistake of visiting the Lancashire witches during her time at liberty. Then. Thomas Lester Jr. accused her of murdering his father five years previously, and the prosecuting magistrate was his father-in-law. When the Aziz came around, they were headed by the judges of Sir Edward Bromley and Sir James Altham. Bromley's conduct is, in the words of Dr. Poole, quote, problematic. 
In the aftermath of these trials, Bromley would go so far as to commission Potts to publish a thoroughly legitimising account of his actions. The events in York with the execution of Preston, as well as the reports that they'd been regularly receiving from Noel, had prepared them for the next stop on their circuit, Lancaster. The trials of the witches in Lancaster occurred over the 18th and 19th of August. Remember last week when I mentioned Alan McFarlane's point that imprisonment was often practically the same as a death sentence for the old and infirm? Well, so it held true for old Dem Dyke. She had entered Lancaster Castle dungeons 80 years old, and she was dead before her trial. Chattox, Elizabeth and James Device, and Anne Redfern were tried on the first day, with all but Redfern being found guilty. On the second day, the remaining suspects were all tried under the 1604 Witchcraft Act. The judges, apparently wanting a do-over, Redfern was retried, and this time the correct verdict was handed down. Guilty. The same verdict awaited everyone else. In total, Alice Nutter, John and Jane Bullcock, Catherine Hewitt, Isabel Roby, Mattox, Mattox's daughter Anne Redfern, and the Device family. Alice and Device, her mother Elizabeth, her brother James, were all condemned to death. Ten of them were executed the following day on Lancaster Moor, while Margaret Pearson was convicted on non-capital charges, and so faced the year of imprisonment with quarterly pillory days. Five others were charged, but later acquitted, but we know very little about them. So that is where we'll leave off today. Next week, we will continue looking at the Lancaster Trials, both in 1612 and the later hunt in 1634. This was an unusual trial that attracted a lot of scrutiny, and the judges were eager to protect their reputation. We'll also have a look at some of the other hunts in Stuart, England, and especially how the Stuart state became less and less enamoured in the entire process. Thank you to Witchfinder General Michelle G, and the Inquisitors Trish G, Elaine D, and to all of my theologians for supporting the show through Patreon. Also thanks to Executed Today, who upped their pledge to become a Hammer of the Witches. If you've enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving me a positive review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast app you use. You can visit the website at thehistoryofwitchcraft.co.uk, where you will find my contact details if you have any questions. The show also has a Facebook page and a Twitter feed if you want to keep up to date. The intro and outro music have been provided by Sounds Like an Earful. Thank you again for listening. Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for season three of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.